Recently, I heard a description of some of the reasons why members of the church have struggled or are struggling with their faith. For a small group, they struggle because they no longer believe the church is true. For a larger group, they struggle because they do not believe the church is good. However, for the largest group, they struggle because they do not feel like they belong in the church. In our study this week, we read two prophets speaking to people who may have felt this same lack of belonging. And we identify both truths about the Lord and possible applications for us that can help heal that hurt. Welcome to the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study Scripture with you. Our goal each week is to help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word, invest your heart and personal life into your study, and connect with others as you teach and learn together. Hey everyone, welcome to our study this week, Hosea and Joel. Uh, it's rainy in and around Philadelphia today because just yesterday, um, in fact I just read today that we have the distinct honor now of being the only city in the country that has lost two championship games on the same day. Our Philadelphia Union were in the MLS Cup and of course the Phillies were in the World Series and both of them lost yesterday and lost the championship. And It was a beautiful day yesterday. There was no rain in the forecast and then this morning we woke up to rain. I think it was just tears from morning. <laughs> oh well, we won't start every podcast episode with sports, but um, it's been kind had of our to life be done the last week. Yep. Um, but on to what's more important this week is our study, um, and we're going to start this episode actually with a question that I often ask to Zach mm-hmm. <laughs> when we are going about our church lives and church business and church duties and church culture and all those things is, um, what are we doing? Maybe you've asked yourself that. And I will, I'm going to say first, what are we doing? Maybe I won't lie that maybe I've said it sarcastically a time or two. (laughs) Um, but also I will say it that sometimes it's good to stop and say, look at what we are doing. We baptized our daughter yesterday, um, and I felt like that was exactly where we needed to be. What are we doing? All the time and energy that we put into getting her ready for that and having that special day with her um, was a very appropriate use of the question of what are we doing? Mm-hmm. When maybe, I will admit, I, I didn't go too crazy with this baptism. I'm I'm learning as I get older not to put too... Um, get too into the decorations. Anyway, I've had to calm myself down over the years with parties and things like that. But um, just even the little energies that we put in has been every, worth every bit of it. Well, we we were talking about this before, but we do a lot of things as a church. We have a lot of activities. I was explaining to someone recently that's not a member of our church how everything in our congregation is run by the congregation and no one's paid. And so our Sunday services and our weekly activities and baptisms and ward parties, it's all run by people just giving their time. And in the middle of all of that, there are plenty of times when we've asked the question, wait, what are we doing this for? And why are we doing this? And and sometimes we ask it, I know I've asked it a lot myself in evaluating where I'm putting my time and energy. Is this like 
wait, what am I doing? Why am I doing this particular thing when maybe my energy should be used somewhere else? I think it's a really healthy question to ask, especially when it is run by us. Often we're making the decisions of, wait, what are we doing? Are we really putting this much time and getting sweaty and running all over the place trying to coordinate something that um, maybe we shouldn't be? Maybe it's culture, that something that we've been doing for a long time that doesn't need to be done that way. Or um, maybe it's something that's in place for good reason. So yeah. what are we doing and why are we doing it? Well, these two books, Hosea and Joel, and in fact, all of the Minor Prophets, are a great place to ask that question because part of the reason these are included is because they were important reminders to Israel um, of the reason why they do what they do, especially as they are uh, captured and taken into exile. Now, Hosea is writing before the Babylonian exile, and Joel, there's a big question mark as to when uh, he was, was prophesying. But these texts serve as a reminder to Israel of why they do what they do. Why do they have a temple? Why do they have the law of Moses? Why do they obey the commandments that they've received from the Lord? And these prophets help to remind them of that. And so what we want to do is pose that episode. In fact, we want to pose two kind of sub-questions of that question. And a frame that I find always really helpful when studying Scripture is to use doctrines and principles. Um, or to look for doctrines and principles. Now, in our church common vocabulary, we often crunch those two words together as if they mean the same thing. We'll talk about doctrines and principles. When in reality, they're actually two different kinds of truth. Elder Bednar explained this years ago in a BYU-Idaho devotional and taught that doctrines are simple, eternal, and unchanging truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that doctrines answer the why questions in our lives. So, doctrines help us to answer the question, why does God do what he does, or what does God do? They're truths about the Lord or his gospel. That's a doctrine. Principles are, according to Eller Bednar, doctrinally based guidelines for what we ought to do. They answer the what and the how questions. So principles answer the what am I doing or what should I do questions. So a doctrine teaches us about the Lord, about his character, his nature, his plan, and helps us to understand and love him more. A principle guides my actions and my behavior and helps me know what it is that I'm supposed to be doing and how to do it. This is a great frame to use for any block of scripture, but I find it especially powerful in these chapters because they are so rich in both doctrine and principle. So we want to give just a couple of examples that we found, and then of course, allow you your own study to be able to search for doctrines that help you know and love the Lord and principles that help you guide your discipleship. And the way we're going to frame that in this particular study is by asking those two questions. And we're going to start with the doctrine question that we studied in these chapters is, what is God doing? And why is God doing that? And then followed up with, in turn, what are we doing? Um, and helping us answer that question of, why are we doing that? I think that's the perfect example of this study is, looking at asking that question that's kind of principle-based that I always ask is, 
wait, why are we doing this? Why am I doing this? And looking at the doctrines to help us answer that question, because it's important to know what is, what is God doing? Because that helps us understand why we do what we do. So I'll start and maybe give just a bit of a background. Uh, the beginning of Hosea, if you read, uh, Hosea is one of those prophets where his life becomes the symbol of the story of Israel or Judah. And so he is commanded to take a wife, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Gomer, who is either an adulteress or a prostitute, depending on how you read the text. And she bears him a son, in verse 4, named Jezreel. And go, uh, Isaiah, Hosea's children will symbolize different consequences that Israel faces for their apostasy from the Lord. So Jezreel means the Lord scatters. Then there's two more sons, or two more children, sorry, born to Gomer. Not exactly sure if they're um, Hosea's. In fact, the text seems to indicate they're not. But in verse 6, there's a daughter named Lo-Rahama. And then in verse 9, there's a son named Lo-Ami. And these names, the footnotes help us to see. Uh, Lo-Rahama means not having obtained mercy. Lo is a prefix meaning not or no. And Lo-Ami meaning not my people. And so here's the story of Israel. They have been scattered or will be scattered. Hosea is prophesying, uh, but we know they have been scattered. And they will feel like they have not obtained mercy and they will feel like they are no longer God's people. And that, at least to me in our modern day, is incredibly relevant. Because whether it's in our individual lives or sometimes in our community lives, we may feel scattered. We may feel like we aren't obtaining mercy and we may feel like we don't quite belong. And so to answer those questions or to address those pains, uh, Hosea gives us some beautiful doctrine. What is the Lord doing to... Um, help gather and give mercy to and help his people feel like they belong. And so Hosea chapter 2, starting in verse 14, and I won't read all of these, but but the, the description here of what the Lord is doing is beautiful. Verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably to her, describing the Lord's efforts to reclaim Israel. And then you go all the way down to verse 23, and here he flips those three names, uh, Jezreel, Lo-Ruhamah, and Lo-Ami, um, kind of on their head and uses those to describe what the Lord is going to do. So verse 23, I will sow her unto me in the earth. That's in reference to Jezreel. The Lord scatters. That can mean scatters as people. It can also mean to scatter seed. And as we know, when you scatter seed, that promotes growth. And one of the things the Lord can do with a scattered people is promote growth. And so I will sow her to me in the earth. That's Jezreel, the reversal of that misfortune. I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people. And they shall say, thou art my God. In other words, a truth about the Lord, his character, his nature, his personality is that he deliberately and specifically seeks out those who feel scattered, unmercied, and like they don't belong, and he reclaims them by helping them feel mercy, helping them grow, and helping them feel like they belong. And he's actively doing that today.
I think some more thoughts to add to that come from chapter 6 in Hosea. This idea of these actions that God is about, I think that's what I enjoyed most about this study is really seeing these action words that just bring to life, I think, the feelings that we can have when we feel God at work in our own lives. Um, This one, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, and he will heal us. He has wounded us, and he will bind up our wounds. He will revive us after two days, and on the third day he will raise us up, so we can live in his presence. Let us strive to know the Lord. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. I love the idea of um, really noticing and seeing the life that he gives, and especially those things of he will heal us, he will bind up our wounds. Um, Those scriptural phrases that we see a lot, but when we really apply them to the way that we have felt, maybe you felt um, when you've really turned to God, I feel like they even become even more real. Yeah, well, I think it's um, a great follow-up question to ask when we see doctrine in the scriptures, when we see a description of the Lord's character, his actions, or his nature, it's a very natural and significant and important follow-up question to ask, where do I see him doing that in our lives or in, in my life or in our, in our world today? I repeat this probably ad nauseum to my students, but we testify all the time that, that Jesus lives and living people do stuff. And as unsophisticated as that sounds, I think it's a, a poignant understanding that if Jesus really does live today, he's doing something. Well, what is he doing? Well, he's probably doing the things that he has done throughout the entire story of human history, binding and healing and reaching and whether it's working through others or whether it's own, his own divine intervention, he must be doing the same things today that he has been doing for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um, let's add a few more to that um, when we're answering this question of what is God doing. This comes from Hosea chapter 14. I'm going to start reading in verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them, for my anger will have turned from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. Israel, he will blossom like the lily and take root in the cedars of Lebanon. His new branches will spread and his splendor will be like the olive tree, his fragrance like the forest of Lebanon. The people will return and live beneath his shade. They will grow grain and blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. You know, we talked about um, the beauty of the Psalms and Proverbs and how fun they were to read, but I feel like this language, this um this description and this imagery is just as beautiful, especially as we are really applying it to experiences that we've had with God and what he is doing. Reminds me a lot of the allegory of the olive tree in Jacob 5 when it describes the master of the vineyard and the care that he has for these trees that are in differing states of health throughout the allegory whether they're sickening and decaying or whether they're growing and and flourishing, the master of the vineyard is actively involved. And that imagery is here in these verses as well. The other thing that I noticed, you read um, your Christian Standard Version translation in the King James, verse 4 reads, I will heal their backsliding and I will love them freely. 
And I love the translation of the word backsliding because the connotation there is that Israel has made repeated mistakes, the same sin over and over again. And as I think of the message, the truth here about the Lord, it's that he loves us freely and can heal us in our moments of backsliding. I remember as a teenager feeling, and I have taught enough teenagers to know that I'm not the only one, that uh, I remember feeling until I have fully repented of a sin, until it is all the way gone and I never, ever, ever do it again, God won't forgive me. I haven't fully repented. There's no love or mercy for this sin until it's all the way out of my life, which creates a lot of stress because I, I remember feeling in constant fear of, what if I do that sin again? What if I make that mistake again? That's going to erase everything that's ever happened and all of the love and the spirit and the peace that I felt. I'm going to start back at zero. And that's just not the Lord. I will love them freely. I will heal their backsliding. I think indicates that the Lord's nature is much more generous and that his his mercy and his love comes much more immediate than just waiting until the very end to see if we have finally um, freed ourselves from the sin that's that we backslid into. Oh, I like so much about that. Even even that word "heal" that they he will heal their back our backsliding, um, which to me means that he's going to actively work to help us even when we're not doing right. I know that feeling that you're describing as a teenager or a younger person thinking of rules and regulations, quote unquote, rules and regulations that we might feel God places upon us and seeing those in very black and white terms. There's only a right or a wrong and I have to be perfect in order to be close to God or to feel him again or to be worthy of him. And I think that that, if we don't understand that principle that he's with us, even in our backsliding, in our imperfections, that can become even more damaging as an adult where, you know, your sins become a little less black and white. And a lot of, and maybe I'm speaking for myself, but a lot of the things that I struggle with are more like internal things of Mm -hmm. like, oh, why am I doing the same thing? Why am I thinking this? Why am I um, making those same mistakes? And I just know that it, is a great tactic of Satan to remind us that actually he's not there. If you think that way, or if you make that same mistake that you've made literally your whole life, <laughs> he, God's going to abandon you. And that becomes really hard. So this idea of what is God doing is that he's with us no matter what um, is really beautiful. It takes nurturing to care for a plant. He's talking about trees and all of these plants. And maybe that's why I love that imagery so much is that It's a constant process and a constant change and plants grow and change and they, they shed their skin, their leaves and their growth and they bloom again. But it's all these changes of season that I think God is with us in those. I think it's so important for us to remember that there's a lot of beautiful metaphors that I really love and identify with that has made this study really fun. So I hope that that's something that you find probably some others will stick out to you. So we'll move on to the next question of what are we doing? And I think it's really fitting for what we've been talking about because this first kind of explains maybe what I just said, how I'm feeling. 
This is in Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. Afterward, the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Um, after tasting of it, after feeling those feelings of seeking God, then that's what you want to do. You want to seek and turn to him. And I think that is the perfect way to answer that question when maybe you think in your church life, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Is it helping you seek him? Is it helping you feel of his goodness? Then that's probably a thing we should keep doing. I like that translation better than the King James, which says, fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. The come with awe, which is a better translation of that Hebrew word that's translated as fear. But I like the idea that we're coming in awe at the goodness of God. And as we think about the time when I ask the what are we doing question the most is when I think about uh, my efforts or the invitations that are given to me to be a missionary or to share the gospel. Because sharing our beliefs with others can be daunting because we have a lot of really unique beliefs. But I've realized recently what I really do enjoy doing is sharing my core basic beliefs about God, which are quite different than the way sometimes people view deity. We believe that God is a father, that he's loving, that he's caring, that he's forgiving, that he's these things that we're describing here. We in our church often look for this compassionate God where other denominations, even Christian denominations, sometimes look for a little bit more of the the harsh and the demanding God. And that's a message that I love to share, the awe at the goodness of God. And so I love that verse, and I love that's thinking like, that's something I can do. Well, I think that's why this answers that question of, wait, what are we doing? Is if you have that motivation of seeking him and seeking his goodness, all of those things come much more naturally. Talking about um, your beliefs with other people seem much more natural. Living them or asking yourselves the question of why you believe or what you believe. If if you're seeking the right places, if you're in the right places, I think that those all become much easier. Yeah. The one that I liked is from Joel chapter 2, which is a common chapter to look at for signs of the second coming. Here's where we get the prophecy that the sun will be blackened and the moon will turn to blood. And um, it can be one of those second coming chapters that if not approached in full context can be a little bit scary. However, if you read some key verses in there, again, looking for doctrine, it changes the way that we live based on that doctrine, it changes the way we feel about the second coming and the work that we do in preparation for the second coming. So, Chapter 2, verse 1, blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. And then it talks about those signs. But then at the end of verse 11, it describes the great and terrible day and who can abide it is the question. But then listen to this. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart, not your garments, And turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Meaning he sorrows when there's evil. And then in verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts, 
Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. I, When I read those verses the first time this week, I thought that's such a fitting description for just about all of the activities involved in our church. We fast, we call solemn assemblies, we gather people together, we sanctify the congregations, we have temple work, we assemble the elders, we gather the children. And the reason for all of that is in preparation for the second coming. But I think there's a shift here. It's not in preparation for the second coming that is uh, terrifying. Um, We're not doing what we do out of fear that God is going to punish us if we don't. I would say we're not even doing what we're doing to try and earn some kind of eternal reward According to this, we're doing what we're doing because we love the Lord. We come in awe at his goodness. And when we blow the trumpet, it's not the trumpet of anger at sins of the world necessarily. It's the trumpet of God's goodness. We're inviting people to come. We're inviting ourselves to come closer to him because he is full of graciousness and kindness and mercy and slow to anger. That's the motivation to prepare for the second coming. Um, often when I poll students about their feelings about the second coming, um, the predominant feeling is nervousness, anxiety, fear, because the image we have in our head is that the second coming is going to be this horrible, destructive day. And if I dodge all of the pillars just right and avoid the fire and jump over the pit, maybe I will last. But when you read, and often with them I will read, descriptions of who the Lord is that's coming. And then I just pose to him the question, if that's truly who the Lord is, all of these descriptions we read of him, if we read the New Testament and we think this is the same Jesus that's coming again, how does that change the way that we feel and then the way that we act in preparation for the second coming? So the principle I see here is I need to prepare for the second coming of the loving and gracious and merciful Son of God. In fact, just to tack on more scriptures, uh, if you read verses 21 through the end of the chapter, Joel chapter 2, you see all of these beautiful descriptions. It starts with the, the invitation to us, the commandment to fear not, and then in verse 22, to be not afraid, but in verse 23, to be glad and rejoice because the Lord that's coming is one that provides strength, in verse 22, that reigns down uh, health and prosperity, in verse 23. In verse 26, he provides plenty. In verse 28, he pours out his spirit upon all flesh. That's the God that we know and we love and we worship. He's this kind of liberal, loving, generous Lord. And so... To me, that's a doctrine about him that inspires within me a principled action that I can both uh, act in a way that, that reflects that and to tell others about him that way as well. Thank you so much for studying with us this episode. We hope, as always, that this helps you begin a great study on your own as you search for doctrines and principles that can make a difference for you. And we will see you next episode.